invite you to take out your, your Bible or perhaps the Bible in the pew rack in front of you and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. We're going to read Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 1 through to the end of verse 20. We're nearing the end of our series, uh, Discovering Grace. It's been a series that primarily focused upon the cross, dwelling at the cross itself, taking in the events and details of the story, letting them percolate and saturate in our hearts that we might be shaped and formed by this story. In the second half of this this series, we've gone on to look at some of the blessings, some of the gifts, some of the graces that belong to us because of Christ's work on the cross. Last week, David looked at substitutionary atonement, that great theological doctrine that has uh, profound practical implications for life. And and this week, we move on to look at this idea of, of reconciliation, how the cross reconciles us to God and therefore through God to each other. And the text we're going to use to look at this theme is Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Let's um, focus on this section of God's Word together. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your very presence, foreigners, devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give Ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is your multitude of sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain things. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. 
Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, that song that we have just sung, uh, a prayer asking you to come and speak, is uh, more than just words on our lips. It is, it is the prayer of our heart. We need you to come and speak and speak to us this word of reconciliation, showing us how we can indeed be close and intimate with you and therefore with each other. I ask that you would come, Lord, and, and teach us and that we would receive words of grace from your perfect word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So reconciliation. We're not in a time where people fall out, are we? We're not in a time where there's discord and division and and difficulty in tension, are we? And none of us certainly have that in our homes, right? Maybe it's just my home. Let me tell you one story that is actually, actually wrestled with whether to tell us or not, mainly because of how awkward I feel about it. Okay? mainly because of how bad I feel about it. And it's a, a parenting mistake. And the reason I'm telling it is because my daughter said I could. And because I don't know, I think I might not be alone in being the only parent who's sinned against their children. Okay? Someone give me an amen. Okay, okay, because I'm going to sit right back down right now. Okay? <laughs> so it happened actually quite a while ago. Um, and uh, my daughter came downstairs wearing something that, in hindsight, and her mother tells me was entirely appropriate. But something in the papa bear stirred. And I said, you need to go change before you go out, okay? And she was such a sweetheart. She just looked at me and said, okay, Dad, just let me finish up my homework first, right? And it was kind of like, she's compliant and doing homework, right? <laughs> right? And away she went and she changed and she came back and she just placed the sweater she had been wearing on the table. And then something happened to me that it's like the red mist descends, okay? Um, I don't know if any of you are like that. I'm a hot-headed, red-headed Scott, okay? So the red mist descended. And I don't know why I did this, but I got up and I went over to the table and I picked up the item of clothing that I was not pleased with her wearing. And I went over to the kitchen, opened the kitchen drawer, and pulled out a pair of scissors. Oh, it's so bad, isn't it? It's just so bad. And then right there, just like snipped it and threw it in the trash. Okay? Right then, honestly, it was like... It was like um, I don't know. The sound of it hitting the trash was like a, a gong that made the scales fall. And I was like, what am I doing here? <laughs> and I turned, and my daughter, my sweet daughter, was looking at me like... <laughs> she, she wasn't upset. She was just like... She hadn't had a face that was like, you're ridiculous. <laughs> and then it was great, because like, so I scanned to my daughter, and then I scanned rather, farther around and saw my wife, and she was giving me the exact same look, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I was just like, no, I'm sorry, right? I'll tell you how that story ends uh, near the end of the sermon. Um, <laughs> am I the only one who sins against children? I don't think so. Am I the only one who experiences division? I don't think so. I certainly hope not. Uh, the need for reconciliation is all around us. We see it in estranged husbands and wives. Very often together, very often under the same roof even, and yet there's a gulf between them. There's a tension, a, a silence that's created uh, means they're poles apart. We see it in our offices, tension between boss and employee. We see it in our churches. Don't we see it in our churches? Churches who love to fight and tear themselves apart on secondary issues. And you know as well that that's, that is the calling card of Satan. 
When Satan can't get at a church from the outside, he attacks it from the inside. Jesus told us this. He said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And so where there's division, you know that there has also been Satan. Where there's freedom and peace, unity and joy, you know there has been the spirit. A division in our churches. And we're not immune from that. We're not immune from that. We're not saying, "Mm, look at all those evil churches over there. Uh, A spirit of, of unity, a culture of grace is always aspirational. And we experience it, and as we experience it, it's still aspirational. It's always a thing that we're driving toward. We see it in our homes, we see it in our offices, we see it in our churches. We see it in in, in our nations. Nations that war against each other, poisoned often over ancient hatreds that have not yet quelled, that have not yet subsided. We are people who, in our lives, are in need of of reconciliation. Three questions from uh, this text that I want to ask very, very quickly. First of all, why? Why do we need reconciliation. Secondly, how do we get it? And thirdly, once we have it, what difference does it make? Why do we need it? How do we get it? What difference does it make? First question really comes from verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 1. If you do have a Bible, I'd encourage you to, to, to open it up and, and consider uh, track along, along with me as we work through the text. But why do we need reconciliation? Uh, the Bible actually gives us a very simple answer that I'd invite you to consider this morning, which is that the, the discord and division that we see around us, the argument and the dissent and the lack of healthy relationship that we see around us is actually just the fruit of a deeper problem. The fruit of the fact that we in our souls have been um, disconnected, divided, attention with God himself. In other words, the kind of horizontal mess that we see is the fruit of a, a vertical mess. Why do we need reconciliation? The Bible tells us very simply, we need reconciliation because we have destroyed our relationship with God. Sin has destroyed our relationship with God. See, on one hand, we could say that Sin is a, is a legal problem, that we have a, a legal problem as we stand before a, a holy God, a holy, a just uh, God. And, and that's certainly true. If you look at verse 2, we read, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Now, this is the way that the prof- whole prophecy of Isaiah opens. And what, what this verse is doing is it's a, it's a call to a lawsuit. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth. They're calling witnesses to these lawsuits where Isaiah, as the covenant lawyer, is about to lay out his case before the people. What does that mean? It's very simple. It means this, that what the prophets do is come and act as, as lawyers of God's covenant. So God's covenant summed up with the idea that I will be your God and you will be my people. Now, as history unfolds, what happens? God keeps being their God, and the people keep being unfaithful. And so what happens is God sends these prophets who come and they say, okay, God has been faithful to you. You have not been faithful to him. Because of your unfaithfulness, judgment is going to come, but there's still hope. That's a summary of basically every prophet. God's been faithful. You've not been. Punishment's coming, but there's still hope. And so what Isaiah is doing in this opening verse is it's beginning this covenant lawsuit because there's a sense in which sin is a legal reality. But look at the very first thing God says. It's very interesting that he doesn't, you know, the, the, the court has been assembled and the first thing he does isn't dive into the, the legal implications of this, but instead is dive into the relational implications of sin, of how our sin has broken our relationship with him, how his sin is not just an offense against the holy God, it's also heartbreak to a loving father. Look at verse 2. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. 
God doesn't begin with this list of accusations and this list of frustrations and this list of punishments that's going to come upon the people as the just rewards for their unfaithfulness. He begins by saying, my kids, the kids that I love, my wee ones who I've given birth to, who I've fed and clothed and cared for and loved. My wee ones who at every stage of their lives have, have, have I've offered myself as that faithful, steady presence. These wee ones have rebelled against me. It's not the fury and wrath of, a, of the angry God, and, and, and there is fury and there is wrath because sin is legal. But that's not where we start. We start with the, the heartbreak of a loving father. A father who is who's devastated that his kids have turned their back on him. He tells us in then in verse 3, look at it, the ox knows its owner and the donkey is a master's crib, but my kids, my people do not understand. See, saying, even animals know where they belong. Even animals know who their master is. But my kids, are, they're not even like the animals. So distant are they from me. And then the heartbreak continues. The heartbreak continues. Look in verse 5, because he's not just upset that he's lost relationship with them, but he's also upset with what what, what they're doing to themselves. See verse 5? Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint from the sole of the foot even to the head. Verse 6, there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and, and raw wounds. He's saying, why are you doing this to yourselves? Sin is it, it's breaking your relationship with me and it's doing great damage to you. There's something suicidal about sin. And, and we get that, right? We understand, we understand what this heartbreak's like. We understand what it's like to see people you love doing things that are harmful to them. Either your, your teenager who's making unwise decisions or, or those, those friends who are not faithful to each other in their marriage. And you see their hurt and it makes you hurt. And that's what God's saying. He's saying, oh, my kids, they've turned their back on me and they're bringing destruction to themselves. Our sin has devastated, has destroyed our relationship with God. This is why we are in need of reconciliation. Very powerful illustration of how sin does this actually comes in the very first sin back in Eden. You remember what happens after the very first sin in Eden? What do, what do Adam and Eve do? Do you remember? Immediately, they hide themselves amongst the trees. And they hear the Lord God coming to walk in the garden in the cool of the day. And, and, and they stay hidden. And then the Lord calls on them. And do you remember what Adam says? He says, I hid. Why? Because I was afraid. And moments earlier, we read that they used to walk together in the garden in the cool of the day. God and his people. And so they've gone from this position of, of relational intimacy, of closeness, of, of oneness, to this relationship where their, their attitude, Adam and Eve's attitude toward God is now characterized by fear, but by guilt, by paranoia. Their sin hasn't just offended the holy God, it has devastated the relationship with their loving father. And do you remember what happens, happens next? <laughs> it's not just that their relationship is damaged, it's not just that, that, that the uh, intimacy is, is lost, it's that they're cast out of Eden. That's how, the, that's how Genesis 3 ends. God drives them out of the garden. And not only does he drive them out of the garden, you remember what he does next? To, to, to prevent them from ever entering again. 
prevent them from ever coming into his close, intimate presence again. He sets up the cherubim and there's this flaming sword that flashes back and forth, ensuring that they can never come directly into his presence again. This tragic reality that their innocence, once lost, is, is lost forever. Humanity can't escape back into the womb. They've destroyed this intimate relationship with their God. And of course, their story is our story. Their story is our story. None of us would lay claim to having prioritized our relationship with God our entire lives. None of us would lay claim to never having um, turned our back on this loving Father. Anyone who has the uh, self-awareness to give an honest examination of their own life and their own soul will tell you that we are far from perfect. And the Bible tells us that it's not just sort of Far from perfect, we all make mistakes. It's rebellion against God that's destroyed our relationship with him. Where there was once intimacy, there's now separation. And so that's why we need reconciliation. We need reconciliation because of our own, our own sin. What about the second question, though? How do we get it? The text answers this question by sort of giving us a lot of bad news and then a verse of good news. Uh, The bad news comes by telling us in verses 5 through uh, 17 that we cannot get this reconciliation uh, by ourselves. We can't do anything to fix this broken relationship. What he does in this extended section where he talks about um, the sacrifices that the people have brought and the prayers that they're offering and the incense that they put before him and the new moons and the feasts and and all these things, what what he's doing there is describing the, the religious life of an Israelite. He's walking through their religious calendar, if you will, describing what they used to do in their religious practices. So for us, it's like saying, you know, coming to church on a Sunday and going to small group uh, on a Wednesday and doing your devotionals every morning. It's a description of the religious life of his people. Now, why was this religious life given to them? That they might be in relationship with him. Sacrifices given that they might be cleansed. Prayers given that they might be intimate with him. This religious life was a thing that he had appointed. And yet, how does he now describe it? How does he now describe it? Look with me. Verse 11. What to me are your sacrifices? I've had enough of them. I do not delight in the blood of bulls. Verse 13. Your incense is an abomination to me. 13 again. I cannot endure your solemn assemblies. Isn't that great? Like, the people are gathered like on this, you know, like on a Sunday morning. And God looks down and he says, see you all here? I can't endure that. I can't endure that. Keeps on going. Verse 14. Your feasts, my soul hates. They're a burden to me. I'm weary of them. Verse 15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. When you pray, I will not listen. He basically goes through the religious life of Israel and he deconstructs it saying, when you do this, not from a place of relationship with me, it's not only that I'm not impressed, it's that I detest it. If you think that you can live your own life and then somehow hope that this ritual will will cleanse you, you need to think again. You need to think again. Look what he says in verse 16. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove your evil deeds from before my eyes. Do you get the tension here? There is a really awkward tension here if you're an Israelite. Because the Lord has just said, you have all these things to make yourselves clean, and I hate them all. 
Now make yourselves clean. You know? How? Right? How? How can I make myself clean? The Israelite says. How can we make ourselves clean? God says, you can't. And that's why he asks that, or, or that's why he issues that second command. That's why he says, make yourselves clean. Why? So that we might see the beauty of the next verse. Look at verse 18. Come now, he says, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they should be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they should become like wool. He's saying, you can't fix this relationship. You need me to fix this relationship. You can't reconcile yourselves to me. You need me to become the reconciler. You see the logical sweep of that? I've given you all these things to make yourselves clean, but don't do them. I hate them. Now make yourselves clean. Problem. Well, then let us reason together. Let us talk. Let us discuss. Let us work this through. How then might we be reconciled? He says, your sins are like scarlet. They'll be white as snow. Red like crimson. They'll become like wool. Foreshadowing, pointing, driving to fulfillment where? Not with the prophet who came to speak a word of condemnation, but the prophet who came to speak a word of life. The cross, where Christ hangs, where he, uh, having lived the perfect life, dies that perfect death, so that the barrier of separation might be removed. That the offenses that kept us from him might be forgiven and we might be reconciled. Let's use our Eden illustration again. Why couldn't you walk into God's presence? Because as you went, you would be sliced to pieces by the flaming sword. And now Christ comes. And the sword flashes and the blood flows to create a new way into his presence. So that we might enter, not because of a change of heart on our part, but because of the shedding of blood on his. How do we get this reconciliation? The word is is Grace. We can't fix this ourselves. We need him to fix this for us. And he has. And he has. That's why I love... Where's my, where's my worship guy? That's why I love this song. Where's David? Real men cry about the right things. Where is he? I love this song. Bring him all your burdens, all your guilt, and your sin. Verse 3. Mercy's door is open. Rise up and enter in the the doorway to the presence of God used to be blocked by a flaming sword. And Christ has been pierced with that sword so that we can enter in. So yeah, I'm going to get up. I'm going to get up. I'm going to walk through that door of grace. Jesus says, come to me, and I want to come. I hope you want to come as well. I hope you sense something of the, the separation that would exist between you and God were it not for this thing called grace. That were you left to yourself, there's, there's nothing you could do to fix your relationship with him. But because he has acted on your behalf, you are welcomed, invited, called, pleaded with to come on inside. That's good news. That's gospel grace. Why do we need it? Because our sins destroyed our relationship with God. How do we get it? We can't fix our broken relationship. We need him to reconcile us. And in the cross, he has. Thirdly, quickly, what difference does it make? On one hand, all the eternal difference in the world. <laughs> the difference between hell and heaven. That's a big difference. But there's some practical differences as well. Some 
life-to-life differences, that reconciliation with God enables us to pursue reconciliation with each other. That's why, you know, every week we do the giving of the peace, since you have peace with God and each other, right? That the restored relationship we have with God enables us to be different fruit on the surface. In right relationship with him, we can then be in right relationship with each other. And so, Christians, we ought to be those people who are characterized by pursuing those who are upset with us. And I notice that I use that language quite intentionally. I'm not talking about, when you think of these people, don't think of the people that you're upset with. Okay? I'm talking about pursuing those people who are upset with us. Remember, Jesus tells a parable and he says, if you're, at, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember, what, that you're mad with someone? No, there you remember that a brother or sister has an offense against you. Leave your gift at the altar, go and be reconciled. Right? Reconciliation, what we're talking about just now is this, it isn't forgiveness, how you need to treat those who've sinned against you. It is reconciliation, how you ought to treat those who have an offense against you. And those who have tasted grace, Christians... Those who have gone to God asking for forgiveness ought to be those who go to brothers and sisters and ask for forgiveness as well. How do we do this? I have seven principles. You ready? Seven principles from Ken Sandy's uh, Peacemakers material. Really helpful. Uh, Listen to it just now. Google it later if you're interested. Ken Sandy, Peacemakers. Seven principles, and staggeringly, they all begin with A. I don't know how we did it. Um, But here they are. Seven principles for how you can approach people who have an offense against you. Number one, address everyone involved. Address everyone involved. How do you know who you need to pursue? You need to pursue those that you have offended. That might just be one person. It might just be your spouse. It might, though, be multiple people. It might be your spouse and your kids. For example, my grumpiness, I don't know about yours, my grumpiness doesn't have a laser focus. Okay? My grumpiness kind of spills out. Right? So if I'm grumpy at dinner... I'm grumpy with everyone, you know? And I may be grumpy with one person there, but oftentimes not, you know? I have something else. And so if I've let that spill out, I don't just need to apologize and seek reconciliation with the one, but with the many, right? Your confession should extend to all those who've been directly impacted by your sin. Who do you need to reconcile with? All of those that you've affected. So number one, address everyone involved. Number two, might be my favorite one. Avoid if, but, and maybe. Nothing will ruin a confession. Nothing will ruin reconciliation like seeking to put the blame on them even as you ask for forgiveness. Right? So, I'm sorry I said that, but you upset me. I was in the wrong, but I think you were too. Right? It's this great that you... Know, see, the word but has this like magic power to make you forget everything that came before it, okay? You know, when I was in the wrong, but you were too, what did they hear? You're wrong, right? Um, avoid those words, because when we seek reconciliation, there's this, we're people that are prideful, we're insecure, and we tend to want to justify ourselves. If this was 5% your fault, your job is to go and own that 5%, and it's not to talk about the 95 is to go and own the 5%. And don't ever get into thinking, well, 95, that's a lot more their fault, right? Take your own sin more seriously than you take anybody's sin. Because no one else's sin, 
whoa, you're ready for some like old school Baptist preaching. No one else's sin puts you in the danger of hell. And no one else's sin brings destruction from the inside, like your own. So we take our own sin more seriously than, than anybody else's. And so we avoid if, but, and maybe. Number three, admit specifically. Admit specifically with detail. This is the sin of most husbands, okay? Because this is what happens to, to us husbands, is that we get in a confrontation, difficulty, argument with our wives, and we sort of are just tired of it and don't really, we just want to not be fighting anymore, right? And so we say really vague things like, I'm sorry. <laughs> if they asked for what, you'd be like, <laughs> I don't really know. <laughs> if they asked how your behavior will change, Basically, if they ask any question, you'd be completely unmasked because you have no idea. You just don't want to be fighting anymore, and so you just you say sorry, you know. And that's husbands do this all the time. Why? It's not even because oh we treasure our marriage; it's because oh we want to watch Sports Center and we don't want to be fighting this fight. Okay? Admit specifically, I am sorry that I sent you that email, and particularly that I said this thing. I'm sorry that I was late for our appointment. Specific, detailed, concrete admission. Number four, acknowledge the heart. And what the goal is there, acknowledge the heart. We're seeking to just get out of our own heads and understand how our thoughts, words, actions impact other people. For us to come to them and see, I realize that the reason you're frustrated is because I've done these things. The reason you're frustrated isn't because, you know, you need to work on patience. The reason you're frustrated is is because of my behavior. I acknowledge that you're upset because I said this. Show a sense of understanding to the, the, the implications of your behavior. Number five, accept the consequences. Accept the consequences. Now, when I talk about accepting the consequences, you need to accept the right consequences. Sometimes, in, have you ever been in one of these situations where someone makes an apology and it kind of goes a little overboard? What do I mean by that? They're like, uh, hyperbole. I'm sorry I'm 10 minutes late. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I'm a worm and not a man. I'm just the worst person ever. Because what that's about is your own insecurity, not about actually accepting the consequences for what you did. You've got to understand what are the real consequences of this and accept those. For example, if you had a friend called Adam Outlaw, and you borrowed his truck. <laughs> and then you reversed his truck into your own house, right? Now, when I say I don't mean the driveway. I mean literally into my house. Well, if you were that person. Um, it's appropriate when apologizing to say, let me know how much that cost. You know, we'll take care of that. That's what I mean. It's not a case of like, never lend me your truck again. I'm a worm and not a man, right? It's, here's what, Here's the consequence. Let me accept that. Let me speed up. Number six, alter your behavior. Alter your behavior. Uh, never think, don't, get, don't let your legalistic hackles get up and say, ooh, that doesn't sound very grace-driven. It is grace-driven because grace drives changed behavior. Uh, from a changed heart comes changed actions. And so it's very, very shallow. If, if you apologize for, for being late for the 13th time, your boss might rightly fire you. And your wife certainly won't take you seriously. So alter your behavior. If the problem is you've been late, show up on time. If the problem is that you weren't careful with your words, be, be careful with your words. That's the thing I, I, I wrestle with, and I've shared this before too, but 
Do you know there's like, two kinds of people? There's people who, who think, after an argument, they think, man, I really wish I'd said this. That would have been a curly line, right? I'm not that person. I'm the person who, after an argument, is like, I really wish I hadn't said that, right? <laughs> Words aren't slow. I don't find them hard to come by. Um, and so it's no good just saying that. We need to alter that behavior. Seeking the grace of Christ as taming the tongue. Seeking perhaps friendship, counsel, the Lord, so that the fruit of a changed heart will be a changed life. And number seven, ask for forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness. Don't let... Um, an apology without saying, will you forgive me, is like, an ascent, is like a sentence with an ellipsis. Just kind of like, uh, uh, just leaves you hanging. Work through this and then say, I'm sorry and I need you to forgive me. I need you to forgive me. What you'll find more often than not is that they do. <laughs> and of course, you understand, right? I'm not saying use this, <laughs> use this as an excellently church manipulative technique. Okay. We, whenever we do premarital counseling, we always say, you know, don't use your premarital counseling against each other, you know, because we're so, we're so good at that. Well, the Bible says, you need to respect me, yeah? Anyone who says that <laughs> just isn't going to be respected, okay? Let's leave it at that. Um, I'm not saying you can use this as a manipulative technique. I'm saying if your heart genuinely walks through these seven steps and you come to ask forgiveness, you'll invariably find relationship is reconciled. Why do we need it? Because sin's destroyed our relationship with God. How do we get it? By grace. We can't fix this. God has fixed it for us. What difference does it make? Reconciliation with God brings reconciliation with others. That afternoon, I went up to my daughter's room, and I knocked on the door. And she said, yeah. And I came in, and I sat down, and I said, I'm really sorry. And we spoke about it, walked through some of this. Uh, For example, gave her 20 bucks to go and get herself something else. She says, I don't remember this, she says that as I did that, I threatened to cut cut that up as well if it wasn't decent. Um, (laughs) So it's kind of one of those things that I don't remember it, but I can't deny it, you know? It's like, that sounds like the kind of thing I do. Um, Went into that room, asked for forgiveness. Um, We could preach a whole sermon on the fact that I'm not the only parent to sin against my kids, and I better not be the only parent to ask for my kids for forgiveness, Okay. That's for another day. Um, and what's, what happens? Relationships restored. Relationships restored. Why? Because people have tasted grace. People have been reconciled with God, can reconcile with each other. Let's pray. Father, we're glad for the day, and we're glad for your word, and we're glad for uh, the grace that is ours. Though we have created separation between us and you, you have acted. Uh, going to the gates of Eden, that the sword might flash, that blood might flow, and that we might be back in relationship with you. We thank you for that grace and ask that it would change us, that it would change our relationships, that we would be a people who are reconciled to each other, a church where, where unity and peace reigns, not out of fear, not out of a sense of we need to keep it this way, but out of a sense of just the overflow of the gospel in our hearts. Thank you for all these truths in Jesus' perfect and matchless name. Amen.